if you don't know, you can know. And since you can know, you should know. Amen. He really does care. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts, chapter number 26. You oftentimes hear preachers say, I have a sermon on my heart today, and uh, they should. Uh, but sometimes a preacher has a sermon on his heart, but what's really important is to have his heart in his sermon. That makes all the difference in the world, and I've really been praying that this morning that both can be said of this message today, and I've uh, not had any reluctance to, to preach this particular message this morning, nothing really profound or difficult about it, but it's something very important. Uh, but part of the reason is I can't finish it this morning. Uh I'm going to cover the most important part uh, in one sense. It all depends on where you are in life as to what the important part is. Uh, but tonight I'm going to be continuing on with this thought, and uh, we'll talk about it then. I'm just trying to say that if you want to get the whole message, you need to be back tonight. Uh, every Christian realizes that uh, there is a struggle to trying to live the Christian life. And I think everybody would admit we need help. We, you know, we need all of the help that we can get. One of the best sources of inspiration for me has to be uh, studying the life of, of those who lived it successfully. And of all of the, all of the people that I could think of, I, I, I don't know anybody that did it better than the Apostle Paul. And the question is, though, why did Paul succeed when so many failed? Why did he succeed when so many failed? Well, I believe the answer is found here in verse number 19. This is where Paul is telling King Agrippa about his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. And notice what he says in verse number, in verse number 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient. Paul made a choice that day to obey Christ. Actually, he made a lifelong commitment. And I realize that you and I will never have the same kind of an experience that Paul had nor will we ever be called to do exactly the same kind of ministry that he was involved in, but we can all be just as successful as Paul was, if we're willing. Uh, success is obedience to the will of God. That's all, all it is. A person can be a farmer and be just as successful as being a missionary. A person can be a housewife and be just as successful as, you know, excelling in some area of life. And so it's being obedient to the will of God for our life. So everything then ultimately depends upon our willingness. And today we're going to speak about the way to willingness. 
And let me show you how important this is. You don't need to turn there unless you want to. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 19 and verse 20 says, If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So here we see a blessing upon those who are obedient, a curse upon those who are not. And going back to our text here where Paul says, I was not disobedient. When I first got saved, not having been raised in church, I didn't know anything about church. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know much about the Lord. All I knew was that I was a sinner. Jesus died for my sins. I had trusted Him to be my Savior. That's really about all I knew at that point, and I wanted to, I wanted to learn all that I could. And there seems to be, whether it's the field of Christianity or whatever it is, there seems to be no end to all of the books telling us what to do and how to do it. But let me tell you, we need more than that. Most Christians know what they ought to do. They just won't do it. And James says we are to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And yet most people ignore that command. That, that's not a suggestion, it's a command. Be ye doers of the Word. There are those who love to study the Bible, but they don't love to serve. They increase their understanding, but they do not increase their usefulness. They're students, but they never become servants. And I've discovered in reading different books, whether it's how to grow a successful church, whether it's how to grow spiritually, how to do this, how to do that, I discovered in reading a lot of those books that it deals with the intellect and not with the will. And the real question is, what makes a person willing? How do you get someone who doesn't care to start caring? And every pastor will tell you, you know, they exhaust themselves trying to get folks to do things that they don't really want to do. Now that, that's what a lot of ministry is, trying to get people to do things they don't want to do. And the frustration of that has caused a lot of pastors to resign now, it's easy to find fault with a man like that. You know, how dare you resign just because the people won't respond? Well, it just might be that some of you have done worse than that. You never started. You quit before you ever started. I mean, give the man a little bit of credit anyway. You know, he got discouraged. He dropped out. He shouldn't have. That's right. But a lot of folks from the very get-go never, never really start putting into practice the things that they're learning. So why is it that some people are willing and others aren't? And I'm going to be blunt, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I believe the problem is in most cases. You know, we've been talking the last few weeks, in fact, about the matter of salvation the estimates that different well-known preachers have had as to the number of unsaved people that, you know, they believe that are in the church. And uh, of all of the estimates I read, I, I haven't seen any of them that said that they thought more than 50% of the people were saved. I'm not saying that's true here. I'm just saying it might be. I don't know. But I'm just saying that is a major problem. 
And the fact of the matter is, a lot of people are not willing because they've never truly been born again. You see, had they been born again, they would have a new nature. And having a new nature, they'd have different desires. Have you ever thought about what it was that caused this drastic change in Saul of Tarsus, who became known as the Apostle Paul? What caused that? What brought that about? I mean, if ever there was a faithful servant of God, it was Paul. But it wasn't always that way. On that morning, he set out for Damascus. He was a self-righteous, proud, disillusioned Pharisee. Listen to how he describes himself to Titus. He says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's a horrible picture. But that's the picture of the man who started on the Damascus Road that morning. But suddenly, that all changed. It changed as a result of him meeting Jesus. And as soon as, soon as he did, and by the way, there in Acts chapter number 9, he asked the two most important questions in life. First of all, he said, who art thou? Who art thou? He discovered who Christ was. And the second question, he said in verse 6, Lord, what will thou have me to do? If you're going to ask that question, you better be ready for an answer. Because the Lord is going to give you the answer. Lord, what will thou have me to do? In other words, the same man who despised and persecuted the saints is now suddenly willing to submit himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice that he did so, although he soon learned that it would be with much suffering on his part. The Lord didn't deceive him and say, Paul, look, you just surrender my will. Everything's going to be all right. You'll never have a worry. You'll never have a care. I'll take care of every little thing. You'll never have another headache. You'll never have another problem to worry about. No, he told him, he said, Paul, you're going to suffer many things for my sake. So he knew, he knew what to expect. And still he said, I was not disobedient. Now notice his willingness. And that's what we're talking about this morning, willingness. The way to willingness. His willingness was entirely the work of the Holy Spirit. In all of Jerusalem, there was probably no one more unlikely to become a follower of Christ than Saul of Tarsus. But it happened. And now there's no one more fully devoted to Christ. No one had to beg with him. No one had to plead with him to do so. Paul's conversion made him a new man. It gave him a new nature, put within him a new desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ. All as a result of being saved. As nobody said, well, you've been saved now. What you need to do is come over to the revival meeting and get somebody to pump you up and get somebody to set you on fire and get somebody, you know, to help you understand how important this is and that and all. He, he just, when he discovered Christ was Lord, that's all he needed to know, except now, Lord, what do you want me to do? Amen. Now, maybe you're thinking, yeah, but this isn't normal. If that's what you think, let me tell you, you are wrong. This is the norm. This is not an exception. 
If you've, if you've never had a desire in your heart to please Christ as your Lord, you've never been saved. You know, we speak oftentimes about salvation being a conversion. That's an old-timey word. Somebody would have a, you know, a meeting, and they say, how many converts did you have? In other words, how many people were changed? That's a great word because the word convert or conversion implies that there has been a change made. You see, the new birth always produces a transformation. That's why in Second Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul said, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. It's something new, someone new. Old things pass away, all things become new. That's the norm, folks. One of the best examples, I think, found in all of the Bible is the demonic of Gadara. And uh, in Luke chapter number 8, now, now get the picture. Here is a raving maniac, if you will. Here is somebody that, you know, that would be labeled as insane, a threat to the community. He's running through the graveyard, living in the cemetery. He's running around naked. They've tried to tame him. They put him in chains, and he broke the chains. He is a raving maniac. And nothing worked until that day that he met the Lord. And the Bible says, Then they went out to see what was done and came to, and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed. Yeah, I'll, I'll go on. I hear you. Clothed and in his right mind. Some Baptists haven't got that message yet. I'm telling you, the moment that we're saved. Look, I'm not saying we become perfect because we don't. But whenever we trust Christ as our Savior, there is a change that takes place in our heart. And suddenly, suddenly we have a desire to do what he wants us to do. We don't have exactly the same experience as Paul to the demonic of Gadara, but when we're saved, there's no doubt about it. The fact that salvation changes us. It changes the desires within our heart. And whenever our desires are changed, the ultimate result of that is we're going to change our behavior. We have a new nature. We change our values, we change our thinking, we change our conduct. Let me ask you a question. Because some of you are here and you're still thinking to yourself, well, yeah, preacher, but I still think that, you know, that this is the exception to the rule. I don't think it's this way with everybody. What, what, what do you think it means to confess Christ as your Lord? What, what does that mean? Let me show you how important it is. Turn your Bibles to Romans. Most of you can quote these verses. Romans chapter number 10. But I want to make sure that you get a handle on this. Chapter 10, verse number 9. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now look at verse number 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's strange that today we hear so much more about Christ as our Savior and almost nothing about Him as our Lord. 
if you read the morning manna this morning, you'll notice that it had to do with both Christ being both Lord and Christ. He, he's both. And he can't be one without the other. He is our Lord and He is our Savior. The word Lord simply means master or an owner. It speaks about one who has absolute authority. And notice the emphasis here is upon Him being Lord. And it is all through the New Testament. Far more often do we read about Him as Lord than we do of Him being His Savior. Even the disciples, as they're referring to Him and conversing with Him, the emphasis is always upon Him as their Lord. If we confess what? With our heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess means to say the same thing. It's to agree or to assent. And we put so much emphasis upon saying the prayer. Well, saying the prayer doesn't save anybody. Now, it might be that you're praying when you get saved, but the prayer itself's not what saves anyone. Prayer's no more effective for salvation than baptism or church membership or anything else. Prayer can't save you. Confess means that we agree with, we assent to. What's the opposite? The opposite is to deny. If we confess Christ is our Lord and is our Savior, it means that we are agreeing with who He claims to be and who He proved to be, that He is Lord. You see, He didn't leave us any room for doubt. Especially whenever you go through the Gospel of John and you read about all of those miracles one after another. There are miracles with a message and the Lord said that He did all of those things. Why? He says that you might believe. That we might come into agreement, as it were, as to Him being Lord, the Lord of all. And the opposite is to deny Him and 1 John 2.23 says, no one can deny Him and be born again. Nobody, nobody is saved that would deny the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess Him as Lord. To be saved, we have to acknowledge that He is Lord. That's not just giving your verbal consent. It's not just acknowledging historical facts it's you yielding, as it were, to His Lordship, admitting that He is indeed Lord of law. He is the Lord of your life. And let me tell you, there is no assurance of salvation if we have no desire to please Christ, no desire to obey Christ. That's exactly where most people are at. That's why Jesus said in Luke 6, and verse number 46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? That's pretty blunt. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then do not the things that I say? Now, we're not saved by doing. We're not saved by obedience. We're not saved by working. But that is the evidence of the fact that we've been saved. That's what James deals with that issue. He said, you show me your faith without any works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, there will be some evidence of it. We're saved by grace through faith. It's 
you know, not of works lest any man should boast, but saving faith is always accompanied by a change of desire. Why? Because we have a new nature. And with a new nature, that, that implies a new desire in our heart. We don't always obey God as we should, do we? None of us. There's not one person here this morning who could say, well, ever since the day that I've been saved, I've done exactly what God wanted me to do every single time. No, you haven't. We've all acted out of character. We've all failed to do what God wanted us to do occasionally. So none of us can live in perfect obedience to Christ because throughout all of our life we struggle with our will. This is such a complex matter. And, and I say that because later on tonight we'll look at Romans chapter number 7 and here's the great Apostle Paul saying, For to will is present with me, but how to do it, you know, I, I find not. In other words, there's this struggle going on in his life. What makes us willing? The number one thing on the list is salvation. Amen. Salvation. Now, there are other factors I'm going to talk about tonight, and that's why I want you to come back, because there are other factors that we need to take into consideration because a lot of times we look at somebody's life and they're not doing what they ought to do. They're not being obedient to God. And we just automatically conclude, well, they're certainly not saved. Well, you're not God. You don't know that. There might be deep within the depths of their heart a desire they have a new nature. They have a desire to do what is right. They want to please God. But there are some factors, something going on there that is tripping them up, causing them to act out of character and do things they shouldn't do. And they know it. They're not happy about it. They're miserable because of it. That's why I've often said the most miserable people on earth are not unsaved people. The most miserable people are Christians that are out of the will of God. Amen. Because the Holy Spirit is going to convict us of our wrongdoing. He is not going to allow us to have peace when we're living our life in rebellion against God. So let's not just assume that because somebody's not doing what they should that they're... That they're couldn't possibly be saved because you, you don't know that. But neither should we ever think that we can be saved without having that desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ. From the moment, from the moment I trusted Christ as my Savior, from that very moment on, the one thing I wanted to do was to please Christ. I've not always done that. I, I failed Him in numerous ways. I'm not proud of that. I'm ashamed of that. I don't want to fail Him, but I have failed Him. But that desire was something that was implanted within me. It's not something I attained. 
In other words, it's not something that I created. It's not something that I conjured up in my mind. It's not something that was developed as a result of thinking, okay, now I'm a Christian, so I need to adopt Christian values. I need to quit doing this and start doing that. None of that was regulated by my thinking. I had a God-implanted desire because what happens whenever we're born again is that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. God Himself takes up residence in our heart. He lives within us. And that's what gives us the desire to serve the Lord. What makes you willing? More than anything else, above everything else, is salvation. So what about you? I don't want you thinking about me or your spouse or your kids or your parents. What about you this morning? Do you have a desire to please Christ? Be honest. Do you obey Him? Because, look, if you're not making an effort to obey Him, you have no desire to please Him. If we have a desire to please Him, we're going to be willing to obey Him. And the question becomes then, why aren't you doing so? Now, you can sit here and think, you know, and you know, if we expect what we've been getting, you know, we come to the invitation and, and the majority of the people walk out like there's nothing, nothing that they could have possibly needed to get right with God. And so the benediction is over and they get up and and leave the building just like everything is all right between them and God. And the fact of the matter is everything's not all right. I mean, if we just had an exam this morning, passed out a pencil and a piece of paper, and we all had to take the exam, and we all had to look at our lives and be honest about it, the things that we are failing to do, the sins that we harbor in our heart, and on and on and on of the things that could be considered. You and I both know that a lot of folks would say, wow, I flunked that test. I, I didn't even get a D. I, I failed it all together. And it's apparent with a lot of people, they don't have any real desire to please God. They don't mind attending church. All of their friends are there. You know, they kind of like, you know, the music and occasionally like a sermon maybe. You know, they don't mind that. It's just part of the way they were brought up. That's part of life. But, but there's no real burning desire in their heart to do what they know would be pleasing to God. Maybe you're thinking, well, preacher, how can I, how can I know what God wants me to do? You know the key to that? Jesus answered that when he said, if any man is willing to do his will, he'll know his will. You see, it gets back to this matter of willingness. And there's no need for us to know any more than what we already know if we're not obeying what he's already told us. And we need to ask ourselves, why is it that we are not doing those things? Can we honestly say with Paul You know, I was not disobedient to my calling. Believe it or not, I know God's will 
for your life. At least for some of you. I may don't know everything about God's will for your life. But I know what God's will is for your life if you're here and you're unsaved. The Bible says that He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's no doubt about it. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to be saved right now, here today. Now is the time of salvation. That's what God wants. And when you walk out that door unsaved, you're walking out that door in rebellion against God because the Bible says, He commandeth all men everywhere to repent. We always think of salvation in terms of an invitation, and it's pictured that way, and that's a glorious thing, but it's also a command that has been issued by the highest authority in the universe, God commanding all men everywhere to repent. You say, well, preacher, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not as bad as I could be. No, but you're as bad off as you could be. You'll go to the same devil's hell as Hitler and every other Christ rejecter that has ever lived unless you're born again. It's God's desire for you to be born again. And when you are, suddenly that changes who you are. You're the, the core of your being, there's a new desire because there's a new nature. Secondly, I know that the Lord wants you to be baptized. There's no doubt about that from what is said over in Acts chapter number 17, for example, where, or Acts chapter number 10, where He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Commanded them. He, he didn't say, no, this is really a good suggestion. This is what you need to do. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, the next step on, on the agenda is for you to be baptized. Have you been scripturally baptized? You say, well, I was sprinkled whenever I was a kid. Well, that's not baptism. The very word baptism means immersion. How in the world could you think of that as being baptism? That's not baptism. That's, re that's church tradition. That's the tradition of a man-made religion. That's not true baptism. Baptism is immersion under the authority of a true Bible-believing church. Amen. Have you followed the Lord in baptism? If you read the pastor's pen this morning, as a, you know, the little boy said, I want to get advertised. Well, that's kind of what it is. It's you saying publicly, outwardly, what has happened Inwardly, That's God's will for your life. Somebody else says, well, I keep praying and praying that God will show me what He wants me to do. What, let me ask you this. Why don't you start, instead of praying, start reading your Bible? Because I, I've got to tell you, as you read through here, God's already told us what He wants us to do. Now, I realize that with certain individuals, you know, that there are things that God might have us to do that are of a personal nature, that God would direct or lead us, whatever you want to call it, you know, in certain areas of our life. But when it comes to the basic things of what God wants us to do, the will of God's not a mystery to be figured out. It's something that's already been declared. Do this. 
Well, you can just go through the Bible and make a list of the things that, you know, we ought to do as Christian people. But it always goes back to that one basic thing as to whether or not we're truly a Christian people, whether we've really been saved or not. The way of willingness, the way for people to become willing to do what God commands begins at the new birth. Up until that point, we live in hostility against God, in rebellion against God. But the moment that we put our trust in Him, He begins to do a work in us. So many times we keep thinking about what we do for the Lord. It's not so much what we do as it is what He does through us. He's the change agent. We're not. You say, well, when I become a Christian, I quit this and I started doing that. Well, yeah, you did in a sense, but it was God working in you. I never forget when I was saved, I made one of the greatest discoveries of my life. I read Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now, that had never happened to me before I got saved. I didn't know anything about that. Remember John 8, 44, Jesus speaking about those that are unsaved. He says, ye are, of the father, your de- ye are of your father the devil, and the deeds of your father ye will do. That, that's why it's just natural for a lost person to sin. But now that we've been saved, notice... He says, it's God that works in you both to will. That is, He puts within you that desire. When did He do that? He did that the very moment that we trusted Christ as our Savior. He put within us a desire, a will. But notice, He's working in us. Aren't you glad of that? It's not like He's working way out yonder somewhere, but He's working in us. Both to will, notice, and to do. In other words, He enables us to do what He requires us to do. It's like, you know, preachers often say that, you know, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God can't keep you. And that's certainly true. When God issues a command... God gives us the ability to do what He's required from us. He's working in us both to will and to do. Are you willing to do whatever whatever God wants you to do? Are you willing to do that? If you're saved, there will be a willingness there. A willingness that's not always realized or not always carried out. But that can be corrected. But listen, if you're here and you've never been saved, there's nothing in the world that's going to correct your unwillingness, your stubbornness, your rejection of the Lord. Nothing's going to change that until you've been saved. You can listen to every preacher in the country and it's not going to change anything about you for the good until you've trusted Christ as your Savior. If you haven't, will you this morning? You see, God certainly doesn't force upon any of us salvation. He doesn't force you into a relationship. 
God gave you a will, and it's your choice. And there are forces that will work against you. We'll talk about tonight. But listen, He's for you. and Amen? And if the Spirit of God is tugging at your heartstrings, you need to settle that this morning and say, you know, I don't know all about it. I'm confused about a lot of things, but I believe with all of my heart. I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is my Savior. And the best I know, I'm putting my trust in Him this morning, right here and right now. Would you do that while we stand and we're going to sing a verse of invitation? We encourage you to come this morning and say, Preacher, I want to do what I know God wants in my life. And that starts with us being born again. Father, we thank you this morning for loving us even while we were yet sinners. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for being not only able but willing to save us, willing to deliver us from the horrible pit of our sins, willing to give us a new life, willing to not only take us to heaven but to even begin to change us before we get there. And I pray this morning for that man, woman, or boy, girl, someone that's here today that's never really been saved. And for all of their life, they've lived with a reluctance to do what the Bible commands. Even though they know what it says, they have no great desire to do it. God, this morning, I pray you'll help them to see that their great need is not to be a better person, not to be more religious, but rather simply to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who promised who promised that he would not leave us nor forsake us and that he would save all who come to him by faith so we ask it in his name amen